Welcome to Harp Song, presented by Moon Over the Trees Music and Theater Productions, bringing people together through collaboration, creativity, and community all through the arts. Thank you for joining us this week. I'm your host, Maureen Buscarino, and I hope to inspire you and to help you find amazing music and artists from around the world. Happy New Year, and welcome to Season 2 of Harp Song. We're starting 2021 out with a bang uh, with today's guest. I want to let you know about my other podcast first, though, um, that's premiering this month. It's called Beat Your Heart Out. Uh, it's where I interview legends from rockabilly, jazz, rock and rock and roll. Uh, Deke Dickerson will be my first guest on the podcast. Um, if you haven't heard of Deke, uh, you can look up his music. If you're a guitar fan, um, you can look up his past episodes of uh, his guitar, guitar Geek Festival that he would run every year in California. Um, I also would love it if you could share Harp Song uh, with your friends and family and to write a review. The first 20 people who write a review on iTunes... I'll give you a shout out on, on an episode and I'll send you some fun merch from Moon Over the Trees. So make sure to email me at info at moonoverthetrees.com and include your iTunes name. I couldn't do what I do without the generous support of our listeners. Join us on Patreon for exclusive content, merchandise, discounts, classes, and more. So that's patreon.com slash moon over the trees. I can't wait to introduce you to today's guest. Janet Harbison is one of the most well-respected celebrators of the Irish harp and traditional Irish music. She has had a profound influence on the harp and trad community teaching some of the most well-known harp players in the tradition, like Grania Hambly, Michael Rooney, and Louise Kelly. Her new solo album, By Strangeford Water, is a collection of Janet's compositions. The one you're hearing in the background is the title track from the album. This song is a meditation on the country and the landscape of Northern Ireland. There's also a companion book of the compositions on this album that's available on Janet's website. Janet and I covered quite a bit of information in our chat, so I decided to break this into two parts. In this episode, we discuss her new album, her development of courses to train teachers of traditional Irish music, Northern Ireland during Brexit and COVID, the history of the Belfast Harp Orchestra, as well as her involvement in the peace process in Northern Ireland. In part two of this interview, we'll get into her relationship with Kamek Harps and the story behind the making of the Kamek Janet Harp and other interesting topics. So enjoy! Janet, thank you so much for being with me here today to, to chat about Harp and your new album and all the exciting things that you have going on. It's just wonderful to see you. So thank, thank you for you being more. here. 
<laughs> yeah, it's great to be here. Yeah. Um, so I guess, you know, um, I could start. Uh, by the way, I'm really enjoying the videos that you're posting up on, on Facebook oh. of you and your garden. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're a bit limited here with the lockdown thing. So, um, however, I've been blessed to have a bit of space in the garden and a beautiful tree that is that is busy losing its leaves. But for now, it's it's um, it's a maple tree and it's bright red. So oh. it um, it brings up the roses in my cheeks, you see. So Oh, yeah, I love it too. Yeah, I love the fall. <laughs> oh, the autumn, yeah. Uh, your new solo album um, yeah. that I've been listening to nonstop, which is, it's so much fun to listen to. Oh, that's to. very sweet of you. Thank you for so, saying Oh, that. my gosh, it's gorgeous. Um, so it's by, by Strangford Water, am I saying that? Water. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, by Strangford Water. Strangford Lock um, is um, a big sea inlet in Northern Ireland. Um, it's like... Um, Ireland, if you th imagine Ireland as a kind of a sitting down bear, it's like a really long nose. And uh, just up underneath the nose, there's a wonderful inlet of water. It's the biggest um, tidal uh, estuary um, um, uh, in Ireland. And it's a, a place of extreme um, scientific interest and scenic beauty. And um, I, I worked for a boss who was just one of these gorgeous daddy type figures. And um, he'll probably kill me for saying that. But um, he was our boss, our professor. And uh, we were, uh, myself and my colleagues, there was eight of us, uh, were fellows in the Institute of Irish Studies in university. And um, uh, he would take us out on Sundays to make sure that we uh, were well versed with the countryside and we understood the importance of various different histories and geographies on the landscape and so on. And um, he was one of these people who um, never saw anything superficially. He always, um, if we, if somebody said, "Oh, isn't that a lovely rolling, rolling hills, a scene of beauty?" and he said, "Oh, that, there, there's much more to them than that," and it's a, uh, it, these are drumlins from the Paleolithic era, and 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 suddenly, you know, like a whole other um, landscape of knowledge opened up, and he was just the most inspiring and endearing. Um, um, kind of mentor figure and um, I, I loved him to bits absolutely loved him to bits and he was he was extraordinarily generous with his time and his knowledge and his his hospitality and so we were all very very happy uh, research fellows and um, that was really the beginning of my academic career. Oh wow so and that's really the inspiration behind the album is just like the landscape and uh, well that one particular tune uh, was I suppose the the zenith of of me producing tunes for people or um, composing on my you know just just from my own imagination not to any um, agenda and I wasn't trying to save the harp or score for the orchestra or do any of the things that people were expecting me to do in my educational capacity um, and um, so this was just me uh, composing relatively small scale works over the last 20 years or so and um I never put them on albums and I wasn't really focused on myself I I, I am now indulging myself in in doing my own creative thing without anybody uh telling me oh Janet we need a, a, a slow airs album or Janet we need um another album for the orchestra going on tour at Christmas time or something and um you know, since since the Brexit made my life quite quiet because I was working in university in Northern Ireland after 
my 14 years in Limerick as uh, running the Harp Centre. But I, I left that to go into academia, academia again um, when I was offered a professorship. But literally six days before I started it up in my new position, the vote for Brexit happened. Oh. And so we've had this kind of crazy thing hanging over us where suddenly everybody's budgets went into suspension mode. And even though I spent a year um, with a wonderful lady called Liz Doherty, great, great fiddler, um, the two of us were, were creating these third level um, uh, courses for uh, the training of traditional teachers, which really needs to happen. It's mm. it's not happening yet. Well, we've created courses, but they're all on shelves, sitting on shelves in the university, and not getting rolled out because of the um, the the hold on on funding. So it was a very productive, a very hard working couple of years. But nobody's seeing the the results of it yet. Um, hopefully, down the line, a couple of years hence, when things ease up and we know what life is going to be like after COVID and after the universities and so on have settled there have settled down again because everything's up in a heap at the moment. Poor old Ireland, Northern Ireland is really is in suspended animation um, because with, with Britain exiting Europe, we have no idea what the consequences are going to be for Northern Ireland. So there's, um, it's, it's been thrust into a terribly uncertain place. And then of course, COVID happened um, this year. So um, it's it's a challenging time, um, and I am a few steps away from home, which breaks my heart because all my family and so on are a long way away. But um, I have a gorgeous grandchild here now, and so life is happy enough, but um, it would be lovely to get back to the normality we used to enjoy one time, you know. Um, yes. But anyway, the album really was the culmination of me tidying up my um, artistic uh, endeavors of my own um, artistic endeavors now of the last um, kind of 18 to 20 years or so um, and uh, because people keep asking me for scores of things and you know I I, I grew up a proper Catholic um, where we used to apologize for breathing air <laughs> because everything we did had to be in service of humanity or God or country or heritage or culture I completely or understand. you know <laughs> and uh, I learned that lesson pretty well even though I've been a rotten Catholic for a long time but um, uh, at the same time uh, you know, to focus on yourself was seen to be an act of ego tripping. And that was never proper or appropriate for um, people in, in positions of leadership. And while I enjoyed that position, I, I tended to put my own creative input down because I didn't want it to overshadow the, the, the purpose for which the activity was enacted, you know. You, you mean like the, the the harp orchestra and and your your lessons and things? Is that is that what you mean? You didn't want to take attention away from from any of your students or? Yeah, yeah. Because the purpose the purpose of the orchestra, for instance. I mean, if I just give you a, a fast potted two second history, I was busy being my own uh, person and. Uh, in terms of being a young, jobbing, performing harper like many others. I mean, I, there was nothing I, I was good at it, and I won everything I ever went in for. So maybe I was a small bit extraordinary. But, <laughs> um, but at the same time, I was one of many, and there were lots of people, whether they were entertainers or they were concert makers or they were uh, recording artists. There were lots of us around. And I mean, Irish, the harp is the Irish, Ireland's national 
instrument. And I was one of many students in the famous harp room in Sign Hill um, in Dublin, South County Dublin, where I went to school, secondary school. It was just one of those instruments offered. And um, there were there were lots of us. There must have been at least 100 of us at, at a time um, receiving lessons from Mrs. Ferreter. And um, we were all involved in little ensembles and we went off and entertained at little arts festivals or we went to a nunnery in Drumshamble or we went to an arts festival in in um, Newton Arts or something you know and um, these were all very small things you know with collectives of students and um, but it was a wonderful way of sharing music but we didn't consider ourselves to be any way special but um, this would have been about 1980 or so. I was, or just before, no, it would be about 76. Uh, I was in university in Dublin, in Trinity, but the, the troubles were at their height in Northern Ireland. Now, um, you may hear a bit of a Northern Ireland accent in my speech. My father and my, my father's family all came from Northern Ireland and my mum was out of was out of sorts having babies that weren't really uh, making it. So there was there was quite a lot of times between the births of my two brothers, where there was about six years where mum kind of disappeared from our lives, and I went up and lived with my cousins in Northern Ireland a lot of that time. So they were very very dear and very close to me, um, and uh, all the way up through school. We were aware of the undercurrents of social unrest, but then, of course, everything came to a height in, in 1968 um, with the Civil Rights March, and we were just young teenagers at the time. Um, so in a way, it was like everybody else's war, and we sat back and watched, thinking it would never come to our doorsteps. Well, it did. It came to our doorsteps in, in, a, in a tragic way, and um, so uh, I, I felt terribly deeply for my cousins, and they were... Um, busy, busy trying to enlist interest in the peace movement. Um, so my background, while it's Catholic, it would have been very much uh, in um, a reconcil a peace and reconciliation line. So we weren't hooked up to the extreme um, expression of republicanism, for instance. Um, and my background was politically liberal so the idea was to forge some level of accommodation because let's face it the British were in Northern Ireland twice as long as the whites were in South Africa so it was very much the political thing of the moment and I was inspired by Jane Fonda. Jane Fonda was um, a, quite an iconic figure at the time and she was off saving the whales and kind of um, doing the liberation thing and the us feminine us kind of tentative feminists irish style which was pretty pathetic really um were busy watching her being dynamic and energetic and pretty damn wonderful and i just thought what what a dame really and i just thought if she could do what she's doing then why the heck are we sitting back on our little backsides in Ireland and not getting out and waving the fists at the craziness of, of what is going on and what the menfolk are doing in politics or, or fighting on the streets or, you know, it was a pretty, you know, it was, it was a, a storm in a, in, a, in a small place. And it was tragic because, you know, we were not that far related from each other. And um, 
But the difference was that some were Catholic, some were Protestant, and we were busy killing each other over over the, the, the differences. But of course, it was a tribal um, thing. And um, so my family were very caught up in it, but we were very much involved in the peace movement, which was um, um, a big thing that I got involved with in Germany. I went to live in Germany for two years, um, 79, 80, well, 78 to 80, really. And um, I was working with, the, I went over with the peace movement. Uh, they were doing trade fairs, and I just lent a hand one particular trip for a Duant Dynavelt um, exhibition in in Hamburg, and was in a September or October time, and um, but I was really inspired by. Now I was a, I was young and I was in my twenties, and this was like a James Bond kind of world because it was all full of intrigue. We were meeting extraordinary people. I was living in the in the house of the Prime Minister of Schleswig-Holstein, which is the biggest of the republic. You know the um, regions in the German Republic at the time, and. Um, living with dynamic in, or working with dynamic people like Christabel Bielenberg, who were very much involved in the anti-Hitler plot in Germany. So it was all highly political. Of course, I was looking at this thinking, gosh, this is great fun, you know. <laughs> um, but we had bodyguards with us, and I worked very closely with Betty Williams, who was one of the ladies who won the Peace Prize, the Nobel Peace Prize, um, I think it was 1979. Um, but I was I was graduating at that time, and essentially I jumped in with two feet and gave a couple of years of my life to the peace movement. But I was working from Germany, and um, so what I did, I was, I was playing as a harpist, as a harper, harpist, um, doing in the in the house. I lived in the house of uh, Jürgen Westphal, who was the at the, um, at the time, he was the Minister of Defence for Schleswig-Holstein, and he went on to become the Prime Minister. Um, and um, he had extraordinary people coming in. I hadn't a clue who most of them were. But I was trotted out uh, to do a bit of entertaining. And then at dinner, I would give a talk about the value of cultural heritage to creating bridges between the communities. So essentially, I was a musician with a sense of purpose. Mm. And I was all fired up because I knew that me giving these little concerts were the excuses that they had to get interesting people coming together in order to help strategize toward bringing peace to Northern Ireland. So I felt that this was a really worthy thing to do. I hadn't a clue about most of it, um, but I, I lived and worked with, with extraordinary people um, for a short time, and I found a phenomenal purpose in music. I might have just been a pretty little harpy doing pretty little ditties, um, sitting on a trade fair stand or playing in a nice embassy. Um, but actually, a lot of what I was doing was a lot more involved in that. And um, occasionally I would get asked to give recitals. And one particular recital was in the Rudolf Steiner School in Hamburg, which was famous for having lots of um, uh, young prodigies you know it produced all of these extraordinary young musicians and there was i invited along to talk to them about the irish harp and uh, so i gave them all the bumps that i knew but when i chatted to a great um, cousin and mentor of mine uh, peter harbison my father died young so my cousins kind of stepped in with helping my father in going and peter harbison who's an archaeologist well known um, but he married a German woman and he was very much involved in the Irish-German economy. Anyway, I, I was busy telling him about this starring role and this gigantic fee 
that I got from the Rudolf Steiner um, School in in Hamburg, and um, I was I gave a concert in the morning to the junior kids, and in the afternoon to the senior kids, and in the evening to the teachers, and I gave them a kind of a, a workshop about how oral musicianship and learning by ear worked, which fascinated them, you know, and um, so. Uh, but when I told Peter, I said, "Well, what did you tell them about what you do?" And I said, well, I told him a bit about this and that. And of course, I mentioned leprechauns. He said, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, no, you didn't. You didn't. You didn't. And I thought, oh, my God, what have I done wrong? He said, you better hightail it back to university. Get yourself a master's. For Christ's sake, do some research before you let yourself out to do anything like that ever again. So I just thought, okay. Ouch, ouch. So I did hasten back to Ireland, did a master's. Um, and um, interestingly enough, in Ireland, in Dublin, uh, Irish music was, it was being recognised, but not on a serious level at all. And my professor, uh, Brian Boydell, um, seriously influenced me against following my studies in traditional musicianship. And ethnic musicology was really in its infancy at the time and um i mean it, it's far more recognized and we have um you know departments of ethnomusicology and most in, in many universities now but um it really was just in its absolute beginning and Mihal Asuluan, the wonderful Mihal, had um taken on the um Shonaria the lectureship in cork university so i spent three years working with him and that was Excellent, really excellent. However, I presented my master's at Trinity in Dublin, where I wasn't really welcome to do stuff on Irish stuff. And I had kind of had a conversation with with Professor Boydell. I said, well, look, if you think Irish music is worthy of my time, please give me a subject that you think will be enough to get me done and finished with this mm -hmm. darn master's. I just wanted to get back to Germany and I wanted to get back to having fun and my my extraordinary um, adventures, you know, uh, with the peace people and so on. But um, he uh, wasn't, he, he gave me the subject of looking at Ralph Vaughan Williams, who's, an, who's a, a British composer, so, um, symphonic composer. And I thought I hadn't a clue who he was. And um, he said, well, he's one of these um, composers who found inspiration in national music, in the old folk music and themes, and he used them in his symphonies. And I thought, oh, well, look, I'll just do this and get it done. And, you know, but it was the best, it was the best rebuke that I'd ever been given because um, the story of what uh, um, Ralph Vaughan Williams had done in his life against all of the prejudices that were planted on him about stay away from that old folky um, um, stuff that smells of manure and cows leaning over garden gates or, or you know, uh, rustic gates. And um, I just thought, yeah, I think I think a lot more about my national music and I love what this guy had written and he wrote lots of essays. So I, I soaked it up and I thought, right, if he could do it with English music, there is no reason why we couldn't make an effort to do it in Ireland. And I mean, people like Sean O'Reilly had done extraordinary things and really inspired. And the most used record of my youth was Misha Eyre, one of his pieces, which focused on some old Irish shannos, um, old style um, airs, and which I knew very well because I would have played them on the harp all the time. But um, 
what he did in terms of bringing an orchestral feel to the harp just expanded, exploded even, the audience that we had access to. Um, because the only way that we were going to get a decent audience for the harp was to create a spectacle with it. Anyway, that I that idea parked in my head because all of the time, in Ireland, it was hard work to, to be a concert um, player because people expected you to play in the restaurant or behind the coffee parties or, or at the weddings or in the church. And um, it was almost like, you know, doesn't matter what the history did for all of the illustrious harpers that went before us. We're now just pathetic little, um, um, you know, drawing room corner uh, entertainers. And I didn't see that um, at all. I was absolutely fired up in terms of seeing the importance and the relevance of the music in terms of telling the story of our history and um, seeking assistance from, from the extraordinary people that I met in Germany those couple of years. But also, you know, I, when I was touring, I would meet people in America. Like I, I, from 1980, I was touring with Coltis um, Kulturieren, uh, and they had, ex the, it, at that time, Riverdance hadn't happened yet. Um, and they had massive audiences all over the States and also in Europe. And um, I, I, I was given such an amazing opportunity by Coltus to, to expand and see the value of music, not just from the political point of view, but from the point of view of telling Ireland's story. Because we were very, it, didn't, it wasn't something that we were proud of at home because we used to get castigated and told we're country bumpkins and um, worse, <laughs> you know, because um, as a classically trained or training musician, the fact that I had a traditional side to me made, made life very uncomfortable. Um, I remember my first recital in Trinity College in Dublin. I thought, well, you know, there's so many pianists. There was only eight of us in our year, but almost all of us were pianists. And that was my um, official subject. That was the subject I sweated and toiled and competed and examined for years and years and years. Um, whereas nobody ever said boo to a goose when I when I played the harp. Nobody told me, oh, that's wrong. That's the wrong fingering. That's the wrong phrasing. That's the wrong this. You know, whereas I was doing all the wrong thing with the classical stuff. But I thought I'm going to entertain my um, fellow students and even the staff of the music school because I knew they hadn't a clue about trad music so I gave them a harp recital and I, I did a damn good job I thought I played very well and there's no reason why they shouldn't be phenomenally impressed with me but um, at the afterwards they congratulated me and they all thought it was terribly funny and I am a bit funny okay but at the same time I'm a very serious musician and the fact that they didn't see anything serious in what I was doing and I kind of thought, that this really isn't on, boys and girls. This is not proper. My music is perfectly proper. It was a formal music of Ireland. It's Ireland's classical music. Okay, it's learned by ear. But they presumed that anything learned by ear meant that, the, that we're too stupid to write it down. And I thought, that's a strange way of putting it. I never felt I was stupid because I played music that wasn't written down. Um, but I earned myself... Um, a nickname. I was called Diddly Eye. Oh, here's Diddly Eye. Here's, oh, are you going to do some Diddly Eye music for us today, Janet? And I just thought, oh, forget it. So I kind of buried that. Uh, now, this was in the late 70s, 1976 to 80. So I was well cautioned. I could, I, I got a reflection of how important music was from the European 
context from the political context as well i um uh, which was far more respectful and intriguing and fascinating and fascinated than what i was getting in terms of feedback in ireland either from the rather british uh overtones of our academic environments or by our own views of ourselves, kind of putting ourselves down, oh, that's country gobshite music, let's, let's face it. You don't do this proper in the cities and it's only for toothless wonders and it's only scratchy, scratchy, scratchy stuff anyway, isn't it? So um, anyway, this was probably quite a long answer to a short question, no. was it? It's terrific. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that's really the foundation of where I started from. So I understood that there could be more of a purpose to music than just pure entertainment there was always the pure entertainment element in there and the beauty of the music and the importance and depth and profundity and uh, and you know emotional content of the music as well as the lively um uh cheeky and impudent and <laughs> fun and funky side as well of the dance music and you know because we knew how to really enjoy ourselves but we knew how to take the sadness out of us too with the depth of the slow airs for instance which is a massively profound um area in our repertoire but um in northern ireland i i understood the value it could have not just in bringing a different story of northern ireland the mix of the scottish and um and what they call the Ulster Scots, the Scottish stroke British element of the community in Northern Ireland and the Irish stroke nationalist. Um, and I mean, the, the plantation of Ulster happened in the first decade of the 1600s. So this tradition has been there a long time. And in an awful lot of the names of, of the families that live um, in Northern Ireland that are of a British unionist background, they're all McAfee or McIntyre or, you know, they're Scottish names. Mm. And they're Presbyterianized Celts. We're all the same race. We're, but some of them were turned into Presbyterians. And the land was owned by the Anglican English but the industry was controlled by the Presbyterians and the Catholics were the disenfranchised workers. Um, so it was an interesting history that we loved to tell um, in, or that I loved to tell in my music presentations. But then I, after my fellowship, two years in the University of um, Belfast, in, in Queen's University of Belfast, where the Institute of Irish Studies is based, um, where, interestingly enough, the name of the institute was never put on the house outside because it kept getting bombed. But mm -hmm. this is because we were still in the middle of the Troubles time. Um, but I was headhunted and I was given a position in the Australian Folk and Transport Museum as a music curator. But while I had the position of being a, a museum worker, that wasn't my remit. My remit was to create projects that allowed Catholic and Protestant uh, children uh, to collaborate together in an artistic presentation and that would envelop their families and communities so that it would become an opportunity for uh, people to celebrate their own culture and learn of the other mm. because there were lots of, there was lots of tunes that were associated with one community, the Irish community, the Irish and Gaelic community. And then there was tunes that were associated with the Ulster Scots community. And none, the twain were not allowed to meet 
Um, but we brought them together on a common stage. And I thought this was just a nice idea for the um, bicentenary of the Lindenhall Library, one of Belfast library, libraries. And they were the, the, four bar, the forefathers of this festival in um, 1788 uh, were the founders of the Lindenhall Library, which was the first significant library in Belfast. But there was these people that also went on in 1792, four years later, to um, host the Belfast Harpers Assembly, which was the last great assembly of harp players from the old tradition who were brought together, not in a competition environment, but to have their music written down and that they would play, um, you know, kind of to an open audience over a couple of days in the middle of July. Um, and there, there were kind of political overtones as well because it was part of the um, the anniversary of the storming of the Bastille because the forefathers in Belfast wanted to make the harp the symbol of the nationalist effort, which was led at that time by Presbyterians. Don't worry, I won't turn this into a, into, um, um, a history lesson. But suffice to say that... Um, I was asked just to put a commemorative type of concert together. So, um, and I thought, well, I'm not interested in teaching. I'm, I'm too important to teach. What do you mean I've got to go? So this is the project. This is the, one of the projects I was doing because I was doing lots of projects. Um, and um, so I said, but there's me and there's Mary, there's um, there's Derek Bell of the Chieftains and who else did I say? Granny Yates of Dublin. I said, the three of us could put on a nice little harp. Oh no, we don't want you at all. We don't want you at all. And I said, well, what do you want to commemorate your, your bicentenary? And they said, we want to put the youth of Ulster on the stage. Mm. And I said, but there is no youth of Ulster playing the harp. Nobody in the northern province, pretty much nobody at that time was playing the harp. And the few people that did were off to Dublin each week to have classical harp lessons. Uh, and literally we're talking about four, mm. three to four people. Um, so there really was nothing going on harp-wise, mainly because it was also an instrument that people couldn't figure out. Well, is this a Catholic Irish thing to do? Or is this a, a Protestant unionist thing to do? Because the harp was the, ele was the emblem also of the police in Northern Ireland, the British police in Northern Ireland. So um, it, was, it, was very, it was very uncertain as to what anybody did. But then my name is not Murphy or O'Brien. Um, I, my name has an, an Ulster Scots background, but somewhere along the way, they married somebody married a Catholic, and we all ended up Catholics, you know, for hundreds of years. It is what it is. And um, but let's say that I have a bit of a mixed background because of that. Even if it did happen 400 years ago, I'm still having to answer for it now. I still carry the name Harbison. It's not uh, like I say an obviously Irish name. It's a it's an Ulster Scots name an English, northern English, it's a southern Yorkshire to be precise. But anyway, it's certainly not bloody Irish. Um, so I thought, okay, and I went to Trinity College, which is the Protestant University in Dublin, not UCD, which is the Catholic University in Dublin. Um, and I went to the Protestant one because my father was busy, busy building the other one. Uh, he was an engineer. And I didn't want to go everywhere that, are you Jock's daughter? You know, and I just thought, no, I, I, I'm a rebel. I don't want to go where my father's name is everywhere. So um, I went to Trinity. And I, I, Trinity was a bit more upper crust anyway. And I was a little bit ahead of myself. And I just thought, no, I'm going to a posh place. Thank you very much. Off you go. Um, and so I graduated from Trinity. So, of course, in Northern Ireland, they presumed I had an Ulster Unionist or at least Protestant background. 
um, which wasn't the case at all. But that was the presumption uh, when I was employed. And so I ended up having 18 years, working 18 years in the Northern Ireland environment, creating these projects. But obviously the most, the most visible one and the most successful one was the Belfast Harp Orchestra, because that little troop of little kiddies um, in 1988, and literally, our youngest was six years old, and the oldest was 15 or 16. Um, And I put 22 kids on stage, and literally, they were plucking every second string. (laughs) And I was trying to make them sound absolutely fabulous, but I knew that it was pretty basic stuff, because I'd only been training them for two years, and this was because of the, um, the project that I was told I was going to be doing, um, you know, that I, when I said that there was no youth of Northern Ireland playing the harp, you've got two years, <laughs> fix it. So that was really where it all started. And But that was a wonderful concert. And that one concert in the Ulster Hall filled the hall. It was also, it was the end night, the big night of the Linen Hall Library's Bicentennial Programme. But it was also the opening concert of the Lord Mayor's Show. Two big festivals in Belfast and they were they were kind of amalgamated in one. So we suddenly had an amazing concert audience. I mean, um, in, in Ulster Hall, which was the, the, the big hall in Belfast at the time. BBC recorded the concert and they played it um, in two programmes afterwards. And um, the kind of euphoric celebration, we had a standing ovation um, at the end. No, it, it was an extraordinary event. Um, and in order to make sure that people didn't see how pathetic we, we actually were, um, because our music had wasn't particularly articulate, you know. I mean, everybody was playing about two years old and two two years only. And I mean, some of the teenagers were doing great, but most of them were were still very basic players. But I got um, um, a wonderful man, uh, Havelock Nelson, who was a, an orchestra conductor, um, who was retired and also a retired GP, a doctor, but very big personality in Belfast. I decided to get him to come along and conduct. Now, none of the kids looked at him, <laughs> but uh, he was grand and he made it look fantastic. And the kids were all in their beautiful Sunday garbs. We didn't have any uniforms or anything then. We all had just pretty dresses. And we had Sean Rafferty from BBC, who's still an iconic presenter, radio presenter. And um, Sean uh, is now with BBC Three, the classical music um, station in London, in England. I'm not sure if it's London, but it's in England anyway, the British one, BBC. And um, so I had him to actually present and narrate the show. So I didn't poke my head in. I didn't wave my fist around. I sat and I played quietly and behind, filling in all the gaps <laughs> in the music because uh, somebody had to, you know. And I had an opera singer come and sing, you know, um, a, a couple of tunes. And everything in the concert had been arranged from the bunting mm. harp music collection. And a lot of the time, this was music that nobody knew. This was not Danny Boy and Sally Gardens. This this was all 18th century Irish harp music. And um, it was such an amazing journey, not just in the finding of the music and the setting up of it so that my little kiddiewinks could um, pluck away and make an impression um, that would entertain a hall of all the hoi polloi and Belfast, Belfast society at the time. But these two programmes that BBC made carried the wave of euphoria 
and um, really set a kind of a, a wave in motion in Northern Ireland where I was suddenly trying to get, get back to my, my civil service job and my little projects and so on. Um, however, it was quite evident that this project had a future. And in 1990, we, uh, I, w- I used to do a lot of traveling and performing in the United States. And in the Irish studies environment in the universities, um, the academic field, I used to do a lot of those conferences and I would talk about the values of Irish music and heritage and so on. And the universities knew, they'd heard through the grapevine how this concert had gone in Belfast. And they said, bring your orchestra to America. So we suddenly had this extraordinary invitation and the, uh, the British Council were going to fund it and it was all going to happen. But literally about six weeks before we were due to leave, the war in Kuwait mm. broke out and everybody thought there was going to be a third world war in the 20th century. So everything was shelved. Well, we were devastated. We had our own wars. So we knew what war was and we were still there uh, alive and kicking. But um, we uh, had to find another event. And I thought, well, the bicentenary of that Belfast Harpet Assembly is coming up. So why don't we just keep in practice? We'll do a few little concerts just to knock the edges off us. So um, a, a colleague of mine, Jeff Harden, um, who worked with the Arts Council, he um, helped me put a concert at the end of the concert tour, I organised to celebrate the Bicentenary, the Belfast Harpist Assembly, a World Harp Festival. Now, I was just Mrs. Uh, happy to do whatever, and I invited all of my friends from all over the world, every continent, um, um, playing all of the harps that the world could offer. And they all came to Belfast, 42 international artists. I invited them and nobody said no. Hmm. I was amazed because we were in the middle of a civil war. There was nothing but stories of bombs and bullets and blood and guts on the streets of Belfast. And um, there's the one hotel in Belfast called the Europa. It had been, or the, the opera house that was right beside the Europa had been bombed. And all of the front windows on the front of this, this wonderful new modern building, the Europa Hotel, were all um, blocked up with chipboards. So nobody had windows. Um, in the hotel. The hotel was completely boarded up. Um, but it was still operating. I mean, obviously, the lights still worked. And um, literally, that had happened. That bombing had happened two weeks before my festival. Wow. Nobody didn't come. Everybody came. Nobody nobody chose not to come. I was absolutely blown away. And um, because I'd organised, it was an 11-day festival. There were things happening in the mornings, the afternoons, the early evenings, the, the proper evening and late evening. So we had concerts and lectures and things going on and um, uh, workshops and the whole thing. It was, it was an amazing festival um, and nobody refused to come. Uh, and the opening night, I arranged it that the, the chieftains were our lead act. Well, I wasn't going to miss an opportunity. I invited myself and my orchestra to do, well, I was Mrs. Fixit. I mean, I fixed it all. <laughs> <laughs> so we took the stage for the first half of the Chieftains concert. The Chieftains were blown away with us. Oh. They thought we were amazing. And they invited us back. They said, leave the seats on the stage while they did their thing. And they invited us back. And this was totally unrehearsed. <laughs> Absolutely unrehearsed. This happens a lot. 
actually. <laughs> um, however, we're just good at it. And, uh, so um, the, the Chieftains invited us back to join them for a finale of the show in, in, in the Ulster Hall. They just loved us. And they decided that they wanted to take us on tour. And literally, one week after our festival, I was totally knackered. And, you know, because, I mean, I was Mrs. Fixit. So I was doing event management as well as performing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And also doing the meet and greet and picking people up from airports and God knows oh. what. Um, and um, one week afterwards, the chieftains took us on tour with them. And the first concert we did with them was in the National Concert Hall in Dublin. And there they recorded a couple of tracks and they said, this isn't enough. We love what we're doing here. They, we featured with them in, in a concert. It was just one of these random concerts. And we were surprise guests. I mean, I don't think there was even a fee involved. They paid our expenses, all right. But we were guest artists, you know. And um, they thought, we had got a standing ovation in Dublin. Mm -hmm. And nobody knew we were coming, you know, because uh, we're p little people from Northern Ireland. Like, and Northern Ireland is kind of like the backwash of the universe. Who <laughs> wants to know anybody from Northern Ireland? Anyway, um, a couple of weeks after that, the chieftains took us on tour with them to the Royal, actually it would have been maybe only days actually, um, to the Royal Festival Hall in London. And they did another massive concert there. But we recorded another few tracks there. And um, they decided, right, we're going to produce an album with ourselves and the Belfast Harp Orchestra. And that's the album that became the Celtic Harp. Um, and that was released uh, early in 1993. Um, and uh, yeah, we won the Grammy actually in, in 1993 with the album. But we had also started touring the world with the Chieftains. Mm. Uh, now we were doing our own thing as well because the, the tour that we should have done in 1990 happened mm. in 1992. We, we went off and we went to the Milwaukee Irish Fest. And so we had our own tour as well as the tour with the Chieftains. But the, with the Chieftains, we performed in in the Boston Symphony Hall. Oh, yes, that was St. Patrick's Day and there was St. Patrick's Hurricane. So that actual concert didn't happen. We arrived just in time for the concert, but it had to be cancelled because there was a hurricane. <laughs> However, the following night, we were in Washington, D.C. And um, that was an amazing concert because the chieftains being the important people they are, of course, we're going to fly. They um they weren't going to go on a thirteen hour, hour road trip to um Washington, um which is what we did because as soon as we finished the concert, being the cheap lot that we are, uh, we got onto a bus. I think we went to where we should have been staying on a hotel, and we just had the breakfast. But we had it at two o'clock in the morning. Jumped into the um the bus because there was snowstorms. It was snow. There was a massive kind of. Um, weather front happening and we literally drove through the night and we rove we, we arrived in washington probably about two hours before the concert so we did our sound check and everything was fine but guess what the chieftains didn't turn up the chieftains didn't turn up because their flight had to be um it was either delayed or it was it was taken off somewhere else because of the hurricane mm. so um the organizer said well look we've got a hall full of people would you mind going on and doing the first half of the show? And we said, no problem. No problem. We're delighted because um, shortly after we were getting back from that tour, um, it was the 1500th anniversary of St. Patrick. Um, it was some big anniversary to do with St. Patrick in Dan Patrick, um, in the cathedral there. So we had a full 
concert program ready mm. for the playing. And I just chose all the best bits. And so we went on and um, we heard by the interval time that the chieftains had arrived and they were ready to go on stage. However, when we were coming off the um, stage, we got a phenomenal cheer because we weren't expected oh. to be doing this at all. So we ended up doing the whole of the first half of the concert. Wow. It was fantastic. Oh, that's amazing. Um, oh, it was amazing. I'm sorry, I haven't let you get a word. In no, I'm months. loving this. This is so much great. <laughs> but this really was the start of a career and it was very hard. We couldn't step back. Because um, after that, we went on, we did Carnegie Hall and um, people wanted to record us and do television stuff and everything. But we were school kids. They were all school kids and they were all people from very modest backgrounds in Northern Ireland. And their parents were at home kind of thinking, these children are probably never going to leave Northern Ireland again because it's a very, uh, not rural, but it was a very forgotten part of the universe in Northern Ireland. So this was really about creating extraordinary dreams way out of what our normal life's expectations would be for these children in Northern Ireland. So essentially I devoted my life and work to working with these children and creating an environment where they could go forward and use their music as a career. And um, a very high percentage of them did. And in fact, a lot of the people that you know now, whether it's Grania Hambly or Michael Rooney, um, even Leisha Kelly and Paul Dooley, they all start with me. And uh, Grania and, and Michael, um, they all cut their, their teeth in the orchestra. I had them from the age, Grania, I think I started at age 13, maybe 12 or 13. But I had uh, Michael Rooney on board from the age of 10. Hmm. You know, and his sister, uh, Fanula, was a great wee fiddler as well as a harp player she was my baby she was six years old at that first concert so that this just became my thing because there wasn't a big audience for me yet um because there was no audience for irish harp and there was no wish to have women in the music industry i made my first album back in 1974 or 75 and um, I had it now. This was when things were all taped onto tape, ferrous oxide tape, you know, and it was all stitched together with, with sellotape and stuff. It was pretty primitive, you know, nobody might appreciate just how recent all of these developments are. But um, I remember going up the back stairs of Dolphin Records in Abbey Street, and there was a fellow called Dave Pennyfeather who was their chief. Uh, scout, talent scout at the time. And I went in full of bluster and full of confidence and thinking, I am going to set the harp, the, the harp, the world alight with Irish harp music. Here's my first album. And that actually was, uh, was some of my own music, but mostly it was trad stuff. And um, so he pulled the, the bin out from under his table, held it over and he said, well, why should I, be, why should I take serious, um, why should I listen to this? And I and I said because you know I'm going to I, I I'm going to make a career. This is my career. I want to be I I want to keep traveling with my heart and doing all the amazing things that I'm doing with my heart. And he said, and how soon expecting to have babies? And that was absolutely direct from his mouth. How soon are you expecting to have babies? You know that you know we, we the music industry doesn't take women on because you're you're just not reliable. Um, I I was dumbstruck. Actually, I met Dave Fanning. Fanning, Fanning. 
years. I only I watched it, oh, probably about 10 years ago now, but that was a lot of years after that first event. And we recalled the day, but I don't think he remembered me at all because nobody took women mm. on board. And, um, you know, at that time, I, I must have been early 20s, but I wasn't expecting to have babies immediately. I certainly didn't expect I wouldn't have babies. I didn't in the end. Um, I, I had a lot of tragedy myself because myself and my husband, we had we had nine pregnancies, but we had no live um, children, unfortunately. Okay. I tried very hard. Uh, so all my students became my babies. So they got the best of all of my mothering, and I am phenomenally proud of them. But I'm also proud now and delighted to have my life back because since I left the Harp Centre, um, in Limerick in, in 2016, that's four years ago. Um, I am now an artist in my own right. And uh, while I'm loving that other people are still enjoying to play my work, and uh, that was why I produced the CD, was because over the years I have I have composed items, either in, in tribute to people that were important, um, for events that were important, like, for instance, Bright New Morning was composed in celebration of peace in Northern Ireland. And that was a totally playful piece that was just about accommodation of Protestant, Catholic, classical, traditional, um, unionist and nationalist. And um, it was an in-betweeny piece, the, the time sequences. And this was just me having a bit of an intellectual day out um, because everything was halfway between a jig and a reel. So a jig is in 6-8 time, a reel is in 8-8 eight, eight time or 4-4 four, four time. Well, this was in 7-8 time. And it wasn't just a straightforward 7. Um, I, it was a 3 and 4 beats and then a 4 and 3 beats. So it was really a 14-8 piece. But the second part is 11 beats over 8. So I, I, I literally decided to just have a prank. It was a prank, but it was really about telling people, yes, we can do accommodations. Yes, we Protestants and Catholics can live together. Yes, we trad and classical people can find some level of interaction. And then also in the background, there was a lot of groping towards an accommodation, like the classical people giving credence mm. and um, assurance that, that there is something interesting in trad music and trad music not being terrified of the classical people who are so hoi polloi because they're so literate and and superior because you had people like um stefan Grappelli and the extraordinary friendship he he developed with yehudi Menuhin, the um the violinist that that was one of the most um celebrated violinist in Europe. But he was blown away. Thought, he thought that Stefan Grappelli was the best thing ever. And Stefan was, was um, a gypsy from Eastern Europe. But then there was the big friendship is also between um, uh, uh, Matt Malloy of the Chieftains, the flautist with the Chieftains, and James Galway, hmm. the flautist that um, is a massive international figure. But um, um, James Galway was in awe of Matt Malloy. Mm. And these friendships and respect that, that one gave the other, because they were blown away by each other's music, um, this, this was really the time that we could say, yes, we are proud to be traditional Irish players. I am 
I am delighted that I had a classical background because I understand classical music well. So I understood the two musics and the dichotomy of, um, of, I suppose, relationship that we had with our musics. So on one hand, I was a, a hardcore trad um, player that would play in the pubs and go down to all the flacos and uh, get drunk with everybody and sleep under the tables. No problem. <laughs> I did lots of it. Um, and I enjoyed every every day. Anyway, and all my friends were were pipers or or harpers or fiddlers or fluters, you know. And that that was my social life. That was my home informal life. But then I had my formal life, where I was a um, I was a classical pianist. I won lots of competitions. I was often fined doing things like I'd give recitals at the Wexford Opera and um, on the piano. And um, I was also uh, an organist and I was a substitute organist for Patrick Devine in, in the, you know, one of the big Catholic cathedrals in Dublin. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I majored in composition and conducting. And when I was doing my master's, I did um, a course of conducting with um, Jeff Spratt, who was a wonderful, an amazing choral conductor and a wonderful, wonderful teacher. Um, so I had a classical side to me too, and I adore Baroque music. And I sang, I sang with choirs. I used to do, I sing. <laughs> um, so there's times that I'll shut my eyes and sing down through my nose and do the hardcore trad thing. There's other times that I'll, I'll sing a bit of, um, of you know, the St. John Passion. I was the solo alto in, in St. John Passion one time. And, um, you know, I, I do have my feet in two worlds, but I do love bringing trad music to the classical music world and vice versa. Mm. And for me, that's been a lot of what I am doing and loving to do because we have a lot to gain from each other. Mm, absolutely. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Harp Song, presented by Moon Over the Trees Music and Theatre Productions. Join us next week for part two of my interview with Janet Harbison, where we'll discuss how Kamek came to produce the Janet Harp. We'll talk about composing, poetry, creativity, uh, teaching Irish traditional music, and more. And I'd, I'd love it if you could take a moment to submit a review of the podcast on iTunes. The first 20 people to post will get a shout out on an episode and some fun merchandise from Moon Over the Trees. And also head on over to Patreon for lots of other goodies. Thanks for listening to Moon Over the Trees Music and Theater Productions podcast. Dive into the show notes at moonoverthetrees.com. And if you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and subscribe to the podcast. 